If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter number two, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue our series on disciple, and we want to look this morning at a disciple's love, being that it is the month of February, the week when we are as men to be mushy and loving and buying gifts and everything that goes with Valentine's, uh, I thought it would be uh, appropriate to, to look at really that most important love of our life, as important as our wife may be, as important as a fiance may be, our greatest love ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And many times it is that love that begins to wane first. It's, it's usually that love that begins to to fade slowly in our lives. And if we're not careful about it, we can, we can get to a point where uh, we no longer have a love that we ought to have for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at a love that we ought to have. Now, let me just say as a matter of introduction that every great disciple must be a disciple who displays love in their life. Every great disciple must be a disciple who displays love in their life. You see, greatness in the life of a disciple is not determined by any other measure than that. By no greater measure and no greater challenge does a disciple have than to love God and to love others. In fact, Jesus said the greatest commandment of all is to love God, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, love is the great measurement that a disciple must live by if he is going to live a life that is victorious, a life of greatness. It cannot be determined by the time that they've been going to church. Greatness in the life of a disciple cannot be determined by the amount that they've given in every offering when the offering plate goes by. Uh, greatness cannot be determined by the Bible that they hold in their hand and they bring to church and how much of it they have memorized and how much of it they have read. It cannot be determined by the position that they have, whether they're a Sunday school teacher or an usher or a deacon or, uh, or, or any other position in the church. That does not determine the greatness of a disciple. The only way that we can truly measure the greatness of our discipleship is by our love. Now, in Revelation chapter 2, the Apostle John is writing to this church in Ephesus, and I want us to notice what he writes. We'll start in Revelation chapter 1, I mean, sorry, chapter 2. We'll start in verse number 1, and we're going to read all the way down to verse number 5. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, that's a brief description of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is him that is talking. We don't have time to go through in chapter 1 uh, of why that is, but uh, maybe in another message we can talk about that. But you can just take my word for it this morning as we're getting into this, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and he's speaking to the churches. He is the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand. He is the one that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he says this, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. This church of Ephesus, by all outward standards was a church that was a good church, a church that was marching forward for the cause of Christ, a, a church that had a, a focus of the kingdom of God clearly within their sight. Yet when you measure the greatness of this church, we find that they fall short because of love. 
Because a lack of love within them, within them as a congregation, within them as individual disciples, you find that, that the greatness of this church was really quite small. Now, this morning I want to share with you just one really major truth about the church of Ephesus. But before I give you that one major truth, I, I, I want to just help us to get to know who this church is. So I, I want you to notice if you're taking notes that this church of Ephesus uh, had some amazing works. They had some amazing works. The church at Ephesus was a church that was a dynamic church. It was founded by the Apostle Paul and probably Aquila and Priscilla to a couple that would help him as he traveled and, and did uh, missionary work. And this, uh, this, this church at Ephesus, the city was in Asia Minor. It was a port city. It was an important city. You had people literally from all over the known world that would pass through this city. And it was a, a city that was well known in that day and age. It was a big metropolis at that time. And that's where the Lord Jesus Christ decided to plant a church. That's where he called Paul and Aquila and Priscilla to go and, and start a church and start reaching people with the message of the gospel. Now, when they did that, they began to reach people. And you saw people's lives begin to change and they became an unbelievable church. In fact, Paul wrote to them what we know as the book of Ephesians or the letter to the church in Ephesus. And uh, you can read that letter. It is the most profound of all the epistles theologically that was written. Uh, it, was, it was a church then that you know was deep in their theology. They were, they were very much well knowing the scriptures that they had. And so they were quite the church. And I want you to notice that they were a dutifully separated kind of church. The, the, the verse here in verse number two of chapter two says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. The church at Ephesus was known for their great programming and opportunities to serve. They were a, a church that lived in a wicked and idolatrous society yet they were very holy and dedicated to their work. Uh, they were a church that had a dynamic and deep teaching of God's word. You, could, you can see from the way that verse 2 describes them, they were a church that was probably a multi-generational church. They, they had something for everybody. They had a, a, probably a kid's program for the kids that were, were attending. They had something for the teenagers and something for the adults and something for the senior saints. They had, they had something for everyone. They had programs that they were uh, always uh, doing and, and work that was just some amazing work for the cause of Christ. You could see them that they were a church that anyone who joined them, no matter their age or background, were going to have something that they could serve in, a place that they could serve, and something that they could do for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a church that was rich in history. By this time, this is the only church that two apostles wrote to. The apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, and this book of Revelation was written by the apostle John. And so he's also writing to the church at Ephesus. So two apostles. This was a church that was well known to the apostles, and it was a church with rich history. It was probably planted sometimes in AD 50, and uh, Revelation was written some, somewhere near AD 90. So this church was probably 30 to 40 years old at this point. They were a church that for several decades had, had stood and had made some unbelievable strides in reaching people with the gospel. During all that time, they'd maintained a wonderful testimony of making sure that the worldly and sinful practices of their city was not getting into their practice and into their church. In fact, uh, I, I'd imagine that they were a church that uh, knew very well uh, the letter that, that Peter had written where, where he had written in 1 Peter 1.15, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And they were a dutifully separated church. They were working and they were reaching 
people. You, you see that, that the verse says their works were that they labored and they were patient. And, uh, and, and you can see uh, their, their work moving forward. But not only were they a dutifully separated church, they were a doctrinally sound church. You notice that it says, and thou canst not bear them which are evil. The church at Ephesus was a church that would make sure and study every teaching that was given in the name of Jesus. There were many who claimed to be from God. In fact, the next phrase says, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars. You, you found that the church of Ephesus was one that was going to be doctrinally sound. They weren't going to just accept the teaching of somebody that says, Well, I'm an apostle. Well, how do we know you're an apostle? Uh, they would listen to their teaching, and then they would look into the scriptures, and they would, they would see, is what the, the person is teaching, does it align with scripture? Is that truly what God says? And we find that this church was doctrinally sound in what they were teaching and what they were doing there in their church. They focused on the person of Jesus Christ, and they rejected any teaching that was not founded upon him. It was going to take more than just an outward expression of saying, I'm a Christian, to convince them that they, they truly could believe what you were teaching. Uh, they, I, I would imagine, were pretty familiar by this time. Paul had already written all his letters. Those letters were circulated to all the churches, and I'm sure they were familiar with the letter that Paul had written to Timothy, what we know as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I'm sure that they were a church from what is described in verse number two that viewed themselves as the pillar and ground of truth. And they made sure that doctrinally they were going to stay with the truth. That they weren't going to compromise in one way or another and you you see this church, an amazing church. Incredible what they were able to do. They were dutifully separated. They were doctrinally sound. But notice also they were distinctly a suffering church. In verse number three, it says, It has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. We see in verse number three, they had gone through different trials and tribulations. Over the course of those 30 to 40 years, they had really had to stand for truth. The city of Ephesus wasn't known as a gospel-loving city. And many of the members of this church, of the church of Ephesus, were going to have to go through some difficult trials. Some of them may have to have faced prison time simply for standing up for the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, for sharing the gospel with a co-worker or someone on the street or someone in their workplace. They, they, were, they were a church that no doubt for standing for the gospel had been through suffering. The Lord Jesus himself, as he commends this church, he commends them for their work, their labor, their patience, their, their way to, to suffer and yet stand on truth. They did not want to bend to the outside pressure. They stood as a pillar for the truth. You see this church as an amazing church. But I want you to notice their apparent weakness. With all that this church had, with all their amazing programs, with their amazing teaching, with all their structure and staunchness in their standing, they were still weak and missing something. And we find that their weakness was that they didn't let love define them. They didn't let love define them. Really what we see defines this church and what the Lord Jesus Christ points out, first of all, is their work. But he never uses the word love in the first three verses in describing this church. We find that with all that they did and all of their programming, they begin to allow their love to become cold. They allow themselves to become very robotic and very routine in their plans and in their 
everyday, every Sunday services. They stop prioritizing love in their church. We find that what became their focus was no longer that love that had captivated them, but rather the glamour of what they did. And as a result of that, they forgot why they did what they did. Suddenly, with all their programming, it was really about the numbers. I'm sure many there in the church of Ephesus thought, have you seen how much we've grown? Do you see how much we're doing in the community of our city? Have you seen that the apostles know about our church? Two of them have written us. I'm sure many of them had visited them. And suddenly, as love was beginning to wane in that church, the glamour of who they were began to rise. What they did became something that it was all about. It was all about their members and who they were. It was all about the publicity and recognition of others. It was about the exclusivity of being a part of their church. And as a lack of, of love, they began to, to put aside, really, their great purpose and their great commission. You see, the same Lord that is describing them in the first three verses is the same Lord that gave them commission. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he gave the apostles the, the commission that when they were to receive power from the Holy Ghost, they were to be witnesses in, uh, to him in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the outermost parts of the earth. Uh, they, they were to be a witness, a consistent witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it was going to be love that was going to take them from the city of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the other parts of the earth. And, and when the gospel had, had reached to Ephesus and they were doing all this programming, when they lost their love, we find that the, the, the church at Ephesus didn't plant any other churches. We don't know of a, many missionaries that came out of that church. In fact, we see just three to four decades later that love is something that no longer defines them. And so Jesus says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Not only did the church of Ephesus not let love define them, they didn't let love direct them. No longer was love leading the way in this church, but rather something totally different. Now it was their works that was leading this church. Now it's a scary thing when this happens. Because when a church loses love, then they will begin to lose their light. In verse number five, Jesus said, if you continue and you don't change and you don't repent, I will take the candlestick from you. The candlestick represented the light in the dark community of the city of Ephesus. The candlestick meant that's the purpose for why they're there. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Jesus said, you've lost your love. Love no longer was directing them. You know, when love directs you, you begin to do things that seem irrational and crazy. As I said this week, we're going to be celebrating Valentine's Day. And during Valentine's Day, we, we, we do all that we can. We bend over backwards for the one that we love. I remember when I was dating my wife in college. I mean, when it was Valentine's Day, there was nothing I wouldn't do. I remember the, uh, the first year that we started dating in our first Valentine's. I think she still has this thing in our closet somewhere, but I bought her this little uh, chest from Hobby Lobby. It was just this little, um, almost like a jewelry chest, you know, but it was just empty. And I remember buying that, and I remember going to, um, to Hobby Lobby and then buying a, um, a stitching, right? Uh, you know, those little crafts that you can buy and you can kind of stitch whatever the uh, thing. And, and I, I remember, I think it was a flower, like a rose flower. 
And uh, I remember uh, having to buy that like two weeks before Valentine's. And, um, and me and, and uh, my roommate, Matt, we, we went and we were, we were both shopping for, for our girlfriends at that time. And, and, uh, and, and I remember, you know, we, we both thought this would, this would be great. And so he bought one, a different one than mine. Uh, you know, we didn't want to be like buying the same thing. That just, that's just dumb. That's just not, not cool. So, so he bought his, uh, his own and I, and I got mine. And, and, uh, and we thought we were going to be able to do this like in 10 minutes. I really did. I mean, the thing was only like, you know, maybe like four inches by four inches. I mean, it's not that big. And I thought, man, it'll be like 10 minutes and I can, I can do this, but it'll show my love, this, this rose, this beautiful flower. And I got started on it. And two weeks later, I still wasn't finished with it. So I remember uh, I got as much as I could done and I just put it in the box, half done. And then I went and bought some other things uh, for her, hoping that she wouldn't notice some candies and things. And, and that was my, my first gift that I remember making uh, for her. And it took me forever and I still didn't finish it. And even after we started dating and after I gave it to her, I still haven't finished it. It's still my closet, half done. I should have brought it. But then the next year, I remember uh, uh, had been working, saving money. And, and, uh, and, and then I remember um, just buying different gifts. I remember my, um, I want to say it was my junior year, or my senior year. I, I was working crazy hours at that time, maybe like 60 hours or so uh, on top of going and being a full-time student. And I remember that year, I totally forgot about Valentine's. Oh, it was bad. It was bad. I came home uh, from work and all of my uh, roommates were talking about what they were going to give their girlfriends that that evening, some of them had already given their girlfriends that in the morning. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> that's, that's today? Like, yeah, it's February 14th. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even notice. I think she was the only one in her room that didn't get something that Valentine's Day. I remember, man, I, I, she should have broken up with me, but she didn't. She didn't. I remember saving like a week's worth of pay, went and bought a purse for her. I, I, uh, I think it was a, D, a, a D&B purse or something. I don't know, one that she had mentioned to me one time that we were shopping together that she liked, and I made sure I went and bought that. And man, there was nothing, nothing that was going to stop me um, from doing what I had to do. When you're in love, you do some irrational things. I, listen, I, I remember... <laughs> That is so true. Thank you. I, I remember in the summer, in the summer, she lived in San Diego. I lived here in Mission, and I remember staying up five or six hours at night till four or five in the morning. I was going to be going to work at eight in the morning, and I would stay up till six in the morning just talking to her. That's crazy. I've been married for 15 years. I don't know if I would still do that. <laughs> Now we talk till midnight, and I'm like, <sighs> man, but that first love, man, it, 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 it takes you to do things that you normally wouldn't do that people would look at and go, I can't believe that. I remember talking to one of her cousins, uh, Wang, and, and her husband, Jason, and he lived in San Francisco, and, and her cousin lived in San Diego, and I remember him telling me, uh, two years ago, we were talking about this, and and he said, I would drive from San Francisco down to San Diego. It's about a nine-hour drive. He said, I would go down there to spend three hours with her, and I would turn around and come right back. He said, because I had to be work the next day. I said, Jason, are you crazy? He said, man, I was in love. Man, when you're in love, you're usually more adventurous. You're much more of a risk-taker. When love directs you, you forget about the dangers. You just focus on that person, that mission, that thing that you love most. Remember on our honeymoon, we went to Cancun, and, you know, I, I thought, I know Spanish. I can get around this city. And we went to a state place, and I said, yeah, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. We walked around like uh, four or five blocks, and we ate really great food. Then we came out and it was dark. And I didn't remember where in the world the, the bus that dropped us off was at. And we started walking around. And of course, I'm inside. I was panicking like you wouldn't believe. On the, out, on the outside, I couldn't tell her I was lost. 
men, we never say we're lost, right? We were just, I wanted to see what was over here, and I wanted to see what was over here. I just, I want to know the city. And after about 40 minutes, we found the bus. <laughs> but you know, you're in love. We're adventurous. We're just going to go out. You know, when, when love is directing you, you don't think about the danger. You don't think about time, how long it takes. When love's directing you, it, it takes you places that you've never gone before. Love will sustain you long after the time that you would have given up. Love strengthens you when you feel weak and defeated. Man, when, when love directs you, it's unbelievable. We see the church here at Ephesus no longer had love leading them to new places or to new people. They had a whole lot of work, but love was no longer the driving force. And notice what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, in the first three verses about love. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I, would, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others... I would have gained nothing. If we were measuring the church of Ephesus as Jesus was measuring them, we would see that they were just a clanging cymbal and a noisy gong. They had all these works and all these things, but no love. So really, they had nothing. They were a church with a lot of people, but no love. A lot of programs, but no love. You know, as I think about the church of Ephesus, I can't help but think of sometimes where I'm at in life. How easy it is for us as disciples to get busy in the work of church and forget about love. Forget about really the why behind why we're working. And why we're doing what we're doing. We can, we can get really enthralled with the new themes. And we can, we can love the, the programming and the events. And we can, we can really get captivated by all that we do. And totally forget the why. So many times I can look back in my life and identify with the church of Ephesus. I can see myself doing, but not loving. That's why I love verse 5 in this chapter. Because for most people, that's probably where we would end. People have broken up for less. But here's somebody that's doing everything, but no love. We see this played out, by the way, in many relationships, even nowadays, right? There's a husband that's gone all the time. And he says, but I'm, I'm working and I'm providing for my family. And I say, praise God, you ought to be providing for your family. That's kind of the, the responsibility of a, of a husband and a father and the leader of the home. But man, when there's no love and there's just money, it's amazing how fast that relationship falls apart. In fact, that's why it's described the way it is in verse number five. When Jesus says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art falling. Now, there's a path to return that Jesus focuses on. He hasn't written the church of Ephesus just to commend how great their programming is, but how bad their love is. That's not just, he wasn't just being a critic when he's writing them. When he's speaking to them, he wasn't just trying to bring out the positive and the negative. No, it was deeper than that. He wasn't saying this to give up on the church, but rather he was trying to help strengthen the church. He was focusing on the, the one thing that they were lacking and saying, but here's how you can get that back. 
Man, I, I love the work that you're doing, and I love the programming, and I, and I love the events, but, but let me tell you something. What you're lacking, you need most. Because without this, all the rest of that means nothing. And can I say, if we are a church that has tons of events, if we're a church that, that really can bring the crowds in, but when they get here, they don't feel any love, and what we're doing is nothing. If we're a disciple today and we're able to serve in a ministry every Sunday, we're able to talk about the deep truths of the Bible and share with others what we've memorized, but we don't love them, it means nothing. And we, we've done nothing. I love this this letter to the church of Ephesus because it's a comeback story. And by the way, we all love comeback stories, don't we? Jesus is, is telling them, this is how you can come back. Listen, every romantic comedy is always a comeback story, right? In the beginning, they're always in love, everything's going good, and then a trial comes. And about halfway through the movie right? 45 minutes into it, they're breaking up. They can't, they can't stay together. They're, they don't know if they want to figure this out or not. And it doesn't matter what movie, right? You, you, you know, whether it's like Sabrina or uh, The Devil Wears Prada or, I mean, any, any movie you can think of, any rom-com, it's always like that. And what makes it so great is at the end, they come back together, we love the comeback story. We love them falling back in love. We love the couple getting back together. And that's what this church of Ephesus is, what Jesus is talking to them about. Hey, this is how we come back. You've left, you left your first love, but let me tell you, you can come back from it. So my one really thought and message is coming back to our first love. How do we do that this morning? Number one, we must remember God's love. The Apostle John writes, remember from whence thou art fallen. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lines up who they are. Who they are in Christ, how they've been chosen, how they've been set apart, how they're a peculiar people, how much God loves them, how we've been redeemed, and how we've been now placed in heavenly uh, places and and. He goes in detail of how God took us from the pit and muddy and ugliness of sin to be clothed in white purity and honor and glory with him. And John says, remember that. Remember where you were. And remember where he took you? You know, sometimes we can forget what made us special in the first place. You know, as disciples, as churches, sometimes we get really impressed with ourselves, with our events, with our programming. We, we can really start thinking of ourselves like we're somebody. You know, that church across town, they don't have half the stuff that we have. I mean, their church program, you know, for kids, it's okay. But ours is dynamic. Ours is so much greater. We can start believing that we're so great because of what we have done, because of our amazing work ethic, our amazing creativity. We can forget that at the end of all things, we're simply sinners saved by grace. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter, 1 Timothy 1.15. I put it in your notes. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul never got over that. You know why Paul's love never waned? Though people that were with him like Demas 
having loved this present world, left him. But yet Paul, in a prison cold, waiting for his day of execution, stayed faithful, stayed in love with the Lord Jesus Christ because he, he never forgot. He remembered. You can read the second letter of Timothy, the, the book of 2 Timothy. That was the last letter Paul ever wrote. And as you read that, you can see the love and the passion that he has for the Lord Jesus Christ, even at the end of his life, even when facing certain death. Why? Because he remembered. Now Jesus tells the church of Ephesus, remember from where thou art fallen. Remember the love that was given to you. Secondly, to repent. They must repent of their direction. He says, and repent. Remember when thou hast fallen and repent. The word repent means to change direction, change the way that you're headed. Do you know that our philosophy and faith are our compass in life? And when that begins to point in the wrong direction, when, when, our, when our love and our thoughts begin to get in the wrong philosophies and, 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 and our faith begins to wane, I, 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 we, we lose our compass and we get lost. And we end up going in a wrong direction. And at the end, we forget who we are. And that's why the Apostle John says, remember, but then repent. Change your mind Change your view about where you are and where you're going. Change it. Get your mind set off this thought. Oh, because we're programming our church. Man, we love more God than we love God more than anybody else does. Are you sure about that? Oh man, I I listen, I've been I've been reading my Bible all week, every day. I love God more than anybody else does. Are you sure about that? Is that really what our love is measured by? Just by what we do? Is there something deeper than that? At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote this. He says, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Change direction. Start saying, man, what is the reason behind this? You got to remember, you got to repent. The third thing is return. Return to their passion. He says, and do the first works. I love what Thomas Kempis once said. He said, whoever loves much, does much. John's not contradicting himself when he writes to do the first works. He's not saying, <laughs> Jesus is not saying, I should say. Uh, John wrote it, but Jesus is saying it. Jesus is not saying, that their works were wrong. He commended them of their works and their labor and their suffering. They were, they were a phenomenal church doing some great things, but without love, it means nothing. Without having a passion behind it, then it's just things. What he's saying is go back to the passion you had when you did those first works. You know, I, I found in marriage after 15 years and you that have been married longer would probably found this out a lot sooner than I did, but there's not a whole lot different that I'm doing 15 years later than I did when I first married my wife. A lot of it's the same. You know what usually changes in a marriage and why so many people end in divorce? It's because not so much what they're doing as much as the love behind what they're doing. You see, in that honeymoon stage, there's love behind the gift, and it's, it's expressed. There's emotion behind that. There's a passion behind that, and it's felt in that relationship. That 15 years later, you might still be buying a Valentine's gift, but it might not be the same, with the same passion, with the same thought and thoughtfulness behind it. The same love. 
And what Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus is, listen, go back to doing what you're doing, but with love. Love does work. You know, love without works is empty and shallow. Works without love is cold and indifferent. But love and works is life-changing and impactful. So let me ask you something. How's your love? As a disciple, as you reflect on your life and what you've done so far in your Christian walk, let me ask you something. How's your love? You see, if we're being nice to people at work, but we don't love them, that's probably the reason that our faith doesn't impact them. So many times it's what leaves us or leaves them saying, well, that's your religion and I have mine. The one major truth I wanted us to see is that love is the most important reason why we do everything. Love is the most important reason why we do everything. The church at Ephesus did everything, but without love, and they missed it. The greatest mistake that we could make is doing everything without love. You know, Ted Stollard was undoubtedly qualifying as one of the least. Turned off by school, he was very sloppy in appearance, expressionless, unattractive. Even his teacher, Miss Thompson, enjoyed bearing down her red pen as she placed X's beside his many wrong answers. If only she had studied his records more carefully. They read first grade. Ted shows promise with his work and attitude, but has a poor home situation. Second grade, Ted could do better. Mother seriously ill, receives little help from home. Third grade, Ted is a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Ted is very slow, but well-behaved. His father shows no interest whatsoever. Christmas arrived. The children piled elaborately wrapped gifts on their teacher's desk. And Ted brought one too. It was wrapped in brown paper and held together with scotch tape. And Miss Thompson opened each gift as the children crowded around to watch. Out of Ted's package fell a, fell a, a Gandhi rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. The children began to snicker. But Miss Thompson silenced them by splashing some of the perfume on her wrist and letting them smell it. And then she put the bracelet on too. At the day's end, after the other children had left, Ted came by the teacher's desk and said, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother. And the bracelet looks really pretty on you. I'm glad you like my presence. And then he left. Miss Thompson got down on her knees that very moment after he left and asked God to forgive her and to change her attitude. The next day, the children were greeted by a reformed teacher, one committed to loving each of them, especially the slow ones, especially Ted. Surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, Ted began to show great improvement. He actually caught up with most of the students and even passed a few. Time came and went, and Miss Thompson heard nothing from Ted for a long time after he passed on to the next grade. But then one day she received this note. Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I will be graduating second in my class. Love, Ted. Four years later, another note arrived. Dear Mrs. Thompson, they just told me I will be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. The university has not been easy, but I liked it. Love, Ted. 
After four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. And I would like for you to come and sit where my mother would have sat if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. My dad died last year. Ms. Thompson attended that wedding and sat where Ted's mother would have sat. The compassion she had shown that young man had entitled her to that privilege. This morning, you can sit up and teach a class and go through the curriculum and do what you, what you routinely do. You can get up as a Christian and read your Bible and pray and shake hands with people at church. But I'm telling you, without love, it means nothing. Nevertheless, remember from where thou fallen and repent and do the first works. As disciples, man, especially this week, Let's love. Let's love our Savior. And let's love others. Let's not be like the church of Ephesus and wrapped in works. But let love guide us and direct us. It's the reason why we do what we do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just another time to be in your house. We thank you for your goodness to us. Your grace that saved us and your power that has sustained us, giving us the health and the blessing to be here. Oh, Father, as we reflect upon the message to the church of Ephesus, a message that applies directly to us as your disciples today, I pray that we would not neglect your word, but rather be receptive we would be ready to respond to your truth. Be with us as we do this today. As the piano plays, I'm going to ask everyone to stand to your feet this morning, if you would, and join me. Just stand into your feet. And as the piano plays, perhaps, perhaps the Lord is speaking to you this morning. And he's saying, listen, you need to come back to your first love. And you've been doing great as a church and you've been and as a disciple you've been working hard and you've been putting in the time and the labor you've even been suffering for my name but you've lost that first love and then today's the time to just come and let's talk about it. doing those first works again with love as the piano plays and as the worship team begins to sing this final song I want to open up the altar, and if you'd like to come to the altar, just say, I just want to come and, and talk with my Savior. Even if it's just to come and say, I love you, Lord. Then I want to open this altar and give you that opportunity. As the piano plays, as the worship uh, team sings, come on up. If there's someone that says, I want to, I want to pray with somebody. Well, we have our, our deacons here. We have Brother Josiah. We have Brother Mo. It's up here. You can just come and ask them. Would you pray for me?
altars open. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus far surpassing all the rest. It's an ocean full of blessings in the midst of every test. Oh, the Thank you for your love. That when we had fallen, when we had allowed the wrong priorities and the wrong focus to come in, works and labor, you were there ready to restore us. You were there to remind us to remember and to repent and to return to you to return to that passionate love of serving you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us do that this week and demonstrate that love to others. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing one stanza of this this, uh, song together. Oh, the deep, deep love. And then Pastor John dismisses. You're dismissed. Thank you for having been here this morning. We'll see you this evening in Connection Groups, Youth Group. Don't forget, at the Orozco's house, 515. We'll see you there. God bless.